0: Tonight we're gonna talk about the importance of the concept of reliability. Why is it important to establish that the Bible is reliable as a document? Next week, we'll look at the idea of inspiration. And then in two weeks, we'll talk about the nature of God. What kind of God would deposit his revelation in a book like the Bible. So we'll talk about that in the coming weeks. I want to start tonight with an article that was on the back page of Sports Illustrated a month ago. The author was Rex Chapman, who was a former NBA basketball star. He was writing as a three years recovering addict to painkillers, prescription painkillers. But he was talking about the epidemic that our country is currently going through. And he said in, in this article that in America, there are now 62,000 deaths annually from drug overdose. And here's the impressive t- statistic to me in what he was writing about. There was a 19% increase just in the years 2015 to 2016, just in that one year a 19% spike in deaths in America from drug overdose. Do you wonder why in America people keep trying something that doesn't work and that in fact creates more problems? Here's one other statistic from his article. He says, the U.S. makes up 4.6% of the world's population, but we consume 99% of the world's hydrocodone. Then he asks, are we in more pain than the rest of the world? Or is it just that the methods we use to cope don't work. There was this article in Sunday's paper with the picture of a teenager with her head and her hands between her knees. The headline is middle school suicide rate sparks to an alarming level. This article says that between 2007 and 2014, the rate of teenage suicides doubled. What's going on in America? Are we really in that much more distress, feeling that much more insecure, that much more anxious than the rest of the world? Or is it that we just don't know how to cope? Here's a question that I thought of when I was reflecting on that article. What voice What message in America is becoming weaker as our society continues to experience these increasing problems? What do you hear less of now than 10 or 20 or 30 years ago? My suggestion would be It's the presence of God, the presence of spiritual direction, the idea of a sense that there is a way to go and it matters. There's a real sense in which that is what this class is about. So many in our culture say, well, all spiritual paths wind up at the same place. They're just different ways to get there. Is that right? Or is it as Jesus said, there is a straightened way and a narrow gate and few find that path. What guide do we have to find the path? When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Or are they all pretty much the same, or does it really matter? And is finding the path one of the most important challenges that we have in life? On the handout that you had, the second page is the latest rendition of How Firm a Foundation. First week we sang three verses, last week we sang five. This version has all six, but I want you to notice the addition, look at number five. The progression of the song is The first verse is a reminder that we had this firm foundation in the excellent word that God has given us. Verse 2 says it functions throughout every difficulty, every challenge. So verse 3, the deep waters. Verse 4, the fiery trials. Then verse 5. After you've gone through the deep waters and you've gone through the fiery trials and you get to the end of your life, that's what verse five is about. When you look back on the life you've lived as a life of faith, as a life founded in the word of God, my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. The main thing I want us to focus on in two weeks when we talk about the character of God is the love of God. And I'll talk about why. But it's interesting to me that, that the words of this song, out of all the things you just say about God's eternity and His sovereignty and His unchangeableness, it's love. And when hoary hairs shall their temples adorn, hoary hairs, gray hairs, a certain sign of age, When at that stage of life, after you've gone through everything, like lambs, they still in my bosom be born. Not like grizzled old independent people, but still like lambs in the arms of Jesus. Let's sing. How Firm a Foundation, all six verses. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled. Fear not, I am with thee, oh, be not dismayed. I, I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my gracious, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I cause thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine in down to old age all my people shall prove my sovereign eternal unchangeable love and when hoary hairs shall their temples adorn like lambs they shall still in my bosom be born The soul (coughs) hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. I want to spend some time on the very first Roman numeral on your outline that has several passages of scripture because I think it's important to realize that there is a plan and a purpose to the reliability of the scriptures and it starts with an emphasis on eyewitnesses. In the days before printing, the only way to confirm something is to hear from the people who actually experienced, saw, heard the event. And the New Testament is filled with references to those who were present and experienced the earthly ministry of Jesus as the very foundation for our faith. Only two of the gospels were written by apostles. Why is that significant? Apostles are the ones who were with Jesus, according to the qualification stated in Acts chapter 1, from the time of his baptism by John until he was taken up from us. In other words, the entire ministry of Jesus, the adult ministry, the teachings, the miracles, the sayings, the character of Jesus. What was he like as a person? Matthew and John wrote their gospels from firsthand accounts, but there is more to the gospel content than just that. It's because the apostles were with Jesus all the way through that in the first chapter of the book of Acts, he could commission them to wait in Jerusalem to receive the promised Holy Spirit from the Father. then he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Witness there doesn't mean just standing up and telling your story. It means saying what they saw and heard and learned from the mouth and the presence of the person of Jesus himself. Of course, you mentioned 12 apostles. Who do you think of first? Peter, of course. He was the most outspoken, the one who would speak first. He had the highest successes and certainly some of the lowest failures. In 2 Peter, Well, in 1st and 2nd Peter, he writes as an eyewitness, but he has a a particular uh, statement in uh, 1st Peter, or 2nd Peter chapter 1, in which he refers to the transfiguration and what he experienced. Here's what he says, this is 2nd Peter 1, 16 through 18. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Notice the emphasis on Peter saying, I was there. We, he wasn't the only one, heard it, heard the voice. We saw him. This is an experience that Peter could testify to as an eyewitness. But now watch the link between this eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus and the scriptures that came before. He says, we have the word of the prophets, that's the prophets, the Old Testament, made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns. And the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter is the eyewitness. The prophets anticipated, but the eyewitness testimony makes their anticipation more certain, so that those to whom Peter was writing, they lived in what would today be Turkey, who hadn't seen Jesus. But they, Peter's comments, words provide the link from the expectation of the prophets through the ministry of Jesus to those who came afterwards. Luke, the author of the third gospel, was not an eyewitness to Jesus. He didn't live in Palestine. He didn't enter the events of the Bible until in Acts 16 as he's writing about the travels of Paul, all of a sudden the pronoun changes to we. Luke, the author, being included in the events. So he could not say, I was there. What is Luke's approach in the introduction to his gospel? This is your reference to Luke 1 verses 1 through 4. So this is writing to Theophilus. We don't know exactly who Theophilus was, but he calls him most excellent. He was perhaps a member of the aristocracy and some kind of leadership position in the Greek speaking world. So Luke says this, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Why is he writing? To give certainty. He was not an eyewitness, so what did he do? He did careful research, including those eyewitnesses that he refers to, but outside himself. A lot of scholars think that among Luke's research, he interviewed some of those who were with Jesus, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, because if you compare the early chapters of Matthew with Luke in the birth of Jesus, Matthew seems to be recording Joseph's reactions and perceptions, but Luke emphasizes Mary, what she remembered, what she heard. It's Luke who says she stored all these things up in her heart as if he had spoken directly with the mother of Jesus himself. Same thing continues through the rest of the New Testament. Think about uh, what you remember of Peter's sermon on Pentecost in Acts chapter two, Peter and the 12 stood up and spoke to those who were present and he not only says, We were witnesses, but then listen to the other thing that he adds in Acts 2 verses 22 and 23, and then skipping down to verse 32, he says, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross." But God, this is verse 32, has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses to the fact. The people in the audience knew about the ministry of Jesus. Many of them had apparently participated in chanting, crucify him. They knew all that. Peter is unable to add to what they knew the resurrection. We, speaking about himself and the 12, and likely many of those who were in the group in Jerusalem who were not apostles, were witnesses to the resurrection. How do we know that? Well, that comes from Paul. Paul was not an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus. Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Paul spent some time with the original apostles the original church in Jerusalem. He talks about this in the book of Galatians. When Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, which he started through his on the second missionary journey through his preaching there. He wrote in 1 Corinthians that there were some basic truths about the gospel that he had received faithfully from the apostles that he had handed on to the Corinthian Christians. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse three and following, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. So first you've got scripture and you've got the appearances of Jesus But now listen to what happened after the resurrection appearance to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. But did you notice his emphasis on the group of 500 that saw the resurrected Jesus at one time? He says, most of them are still living. Implying what? Implying, if you don't believe me, ask them. They were there. This is the faithful transmission of the word from eyewitnesses to those who would not ever be able to be eyewitnesses to the essence of the gospel. When he wrote to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, He says, you received what I delivered to you, not as the words of men, but as they are the words of God. When Paul spoke by the help of the Holy Spirit, he was speaking the very words of God. In other words, trustworthy message. To Timothy, who became an associate of Paul's on the second missionary journey, start reading about him in Acts chapter 16, Paul wrote two letters to Timothy. Uh, in 1st and 2nd Timothy. uh, He says this in 2nd Timothy chapter 1, what you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Jesus Christ. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. What's he describing? He's describing a chain that stretches back to the apostles, a message that was committed to Paul himself, which he committed to Timothy. What's he telling Timothy? Don't change it, but faithfully transmit it. Pass it on. He says that in this um, time before he died, this is probably in the AD 60s, before Paul died, there was an increasing threat of false teaching and it's important to have a reliable, correct information about Jesus. Timothy was to become a link in that chain. This is uh, 2 Timothy 2 verse 2. The things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. The Roman Catholic Church talks about apostolic succession as giving authority to the leaders in the church. The New Testament never talks about apostolic succession, but there is a succession here. Have you noticed? The succession is not the people, but the message. The succession is what the eyewitnesses saw and delivered to the believing community needs to be preserved and faithfully transmitted. That's what the succession is. That's where our authority is. And so Paul warned Timothy, about the possibility of veering off that truth in this way, uh, 2 Timothy 4, the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine, instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths." Did you catch that use of the word truth, Pat? They will turn away from the truth and be turned to myths. Well, that sound familiar to anybody? Is there any part about that that might be a contemporary problem? Are there those in our communities, in our cities, in our country who are following myths instead of the truth because the message has become confused and they don't know where to go. Apparently it didn't take very long for Paul's warning to Timothy to come to fruition in the early church because First John addresses that very thing. And interestingly, John, who's probably the last one of the apostles to be living, the only one who died a natural death, uh, he was in exile on the island of Patmos when he died. But notice that even at the end of the first century, he was writing in AD 85 or 90, somewhere in there when he wrote 1 John. But listen to his reliance on the original the eyewitness experience of the message. Here's what he says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim it to you, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. This is the message we have from Him and declare to you. From the beginning, eyewitness, we have seen and heard. We were there. By the time John was writing this, it was no longer possible to count in the hundreds the number of people who had seen and witnessed the resurrected Jesus. But the touchstone, the place to go is what we have heard from the beginning. That's chapter one. He repeats it in chapter two. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. Chapter three. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another from the beginning, from the beginning. Part of the reason to talk about the reliability of the scriptures is what happens if we are cut off from the message in the beginning? What do we have to stand on? Where? do we have any confidence?" Undoubtedly, the accounts of the eyewitnesses was accurate, reliable. This is what happened. This is what we heard. This is what we saw. This is what took place. But the question for us in 2017 is, how can we know that the message we have now is a reliable rendition of the message from the beginning. Think about the time involved. When did Moses live? 14th century BC. So it's 1,400 years from Moses to Jesus. How long has it been since Jesus? 2,000 years. So in the span of 34, 3,500 years, what is the likelihood that changes have crept into the text? Maybe through copying errors, you know, until the 15th century, all the books in the world had to be hand reproduced. So what about copying errors? What about a collusion to change the story? You know, there are some who say that the Jesus we read about in the Gospels is not a reflection of history, but it's the faith community putting things together in such a way as to support a conclusion that they had already come to. Remember in what, 2005, 2006, 2007, bestseller, Everybody including most people at Highland read this book this novel Dan Brown The Da Vinci Code Code. I Didn't read it, but I saw the movie But what Dan Brown says in that book is That the church colluded to produce the version of scriptures that they wanted. So they controlled the message. They weren't concerned about accurately reflecting history. They were defending their doctrine. So Dan Brown says, this is a work of fiction. It's a novel, but these are facts. And then he gives a list of facts. And one of the facts he lists is that the first ecumenical church council, Council of Nicaea, early in the fourth century, convened by Constantine, determined that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would be the only acceptable gospels; the others were thrown out. <clears throat> so they controlled the New Testament from the beginning. Only problem is, it didn't happen. Council of Nicaea didn't even talk about the canon. Council of Nicaea was called for a different doctrinal dispute altogether. The canon wasn't discussed till the end of the fourth century. Dan Brown made it up to fit his story. How well? Uh, it, <clears throat> different, different, different. <clears throat> but how are we to be sure that something like that did not happen, or that somewhere along the way, teachers, leaders, people, when when most of the population was illiterate, how do we know they didn't change the story how did, and, and didn't actually make it up? You know, that's what Muslims say to justify the differences between the Quran and the Bible is that when there's a difference, the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, has been distorted through copyist errors and through purposeful distortion, and that the Quran is the one that has it right. why believe either one? What is the basis for our confidence that either version is to be trusted. That's why this whole question of reliability is, I think, so important for people of faith. How are we to be sure that ideas of incarnation and resurrection and uh, miracles of healing and so many other things associated with the ministry of Jesus are not just different versions of Hindu myths or Egyptian legends or mystery religions that existed in the first century. Some of you may be familiar with a uh, late 19th century uh, book called The Golden Bough. It's it's been referenced a lot in uh, secular literature in the 20th century. But in The Golden Bough, uh, Sir James Fraser did it massive job of collecting uh, stories from around the world. But what he tried to suggest was they all including the Bible draw from the same basic sources. What can we be sure that that isn't the case with the Bible? Here's what we can say And part of the design for this series of seven lessons is to equip us to be able to express it. As Peter says, to express the reason for the hope that you have with meekness and fear. That the Bible is reliable as its description of history. Why is that important? Well, think about the narratives of the Old Testament, the narratives of the New Testament. Every event, every major character is rooted in history, is influenced by culture and by world history, by empires, by things that are taking place in history. The culture, the language that is a part of the background of the story is Significant. You can't divorce the message of the Bible from history, much more so than other world religions. Jesus was born at a specific place and a specific time. Paul says in Galatians 4, it says, it's exactly the right time. The time that God himself chose. So what role does history play in our confidence about the message of the gospel? It is simply this. If the Bible isn't trustworthy in what it says about history, which we can test. I mean, you can read other versions of of history. You can study archaeology. There is history is something that is objectified It's part of this world. If you can't trust the Bible when it says something as a matter of history, then how can you be sure you can trust it when it says something about spiritual matters which you can't test, which have to be accepted by faith? I have a a quotation here at the uh, bottom of the first page that I think is significant. F.F. Bruce, a British scholar, uh, has written extensively about the historical liability, uh, especially of the uh, New Testament. He says, the Christian gospel is not primarily a code of ethics or a metaphysical system. It is first and foremost, good news. And as such, it was proclaimed by its earliest preachers. It tells how for the world's redemption, God entered into history. The eternal came into time. The kingdom of heaven invaded the realm of earth. In the great events of the incarnation crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ the message is wedded to history in such a specific way that if you undermine the reliability of the Bible as history then you take away the foundation for accepting as spiritual truth Uh, Paul little in his Book Know Why You Believe says it this way. If the Bible's historical references are not true, grave questions may be raised about the reliability of other parts of the message based on historical events. Now, lesson seven, the last week of this class, we will look at the tests that scholars use to test any book from antiquity about its reliability. We'll apply those to... The Bible. We will compare books that are accepted from antiquity as reliable, the amount of information that's available to support those books as compared with the Bible. But in the meantime, there's this other uh, issue that I want us to think about, which is the rest of the handout. Let me uh, read this quotation, uh, Jerry. up to Jesus, the great sacrifice he made, the life he lives in. Just think about how we measure time throughout the world. We measure around his time, year own. He was in before Christ, There's no question but that he's the most significant figure worldwide who who has ever lived just in terms of the impact on uh, culture. Uh, Wilbur Smith was the co-founder of Fuller Theological Seminary, and uh, in a book that he wrote in the middle of the 20th century said this, It remains a question of acute interest whether their testimony is in fact true. No insistence on the religious character of the gospels or the transcendental nature of the revelation they contain can make the question irrelevant. Apart from the facts of history, there can be no sure basis of faith. That's the question of reliability. A hundred years ago, this country was debating whether or not to give the vote to women. And there were lots of political reasons to debate it, but the churches took an interest because they were interested in maintaining the family, and it was the fear of the churches that if women took a part in politics, that they wouldn't be able to give full attention to raising the family. Well, because the churches tended to take a negative view toward voting, some of the uh, women suffragettes took a negative view toward the Bible. One of them was quoted in the Gospel Advocate January 2nd, 1913 saying this, we cannot accept the Bible literally as, being, as d- divine inspiration. The position given women in the Bible has kept them from their rights as the equals of man. The Bible needs revision. It's not up to date. Well, that's a very relevant question. Sometimes you'll hear it in, in other circles that the Bible needs updating. It's old, it's outdated. A relevant question is, how can a Bible that's been written over a course of 1,500 years and the newest parts of it are almost 2,000 years old, how can it be relevant to guide us to the challenges of life? Does it need updating and revising? Is it subject to human supervision or is it reliable as we have it. I want to assert, and I hope I haven't done anything to suggest otherwise, that the documents of the Bible, every one, are reliable as we have them now. Not just in part, but in total. The reason it's important to be confident of that is, the human mind cannot accept something that it doesn't have confidence, it is true. You can't just say, oh well, there's this mistake in history, but it's such a spiritual book that isn't going to work very well. Uh, The first week I mentioned an analogy from Eugene Peterson, author of The Message, paraphrase. Uh, He wrote several years ago that Part of our problem in the modern world is that that we have the Bible in this form. It's a book. And the problem isn't that it is a book, but the problem is what book means to us. Especially if you think about it as a textbook, an encyclopedia. It's a place to go for information. You look for an answer to a question, for guidance and advice. But if it's a book... I mean, even if it's a story you read and you like, and you think about it for a while, still, if it's a book, the information in here stays in here. It's a book, you put it on the shelf, you take it down when you want it, you put it back. That's not what the Bible isn't, nor was it ever intended to be. And so Peterson says this, to view the Bible as a book in that form is a fatal error. A textbook is the one thing that the Scriptures most emphatically are not, and the worshiping church at worship has never so much as entertained such a notion. Something much larger and more active is perceived a verbal matrix in which the believing behavior of a worshiping community is shaped and renewed. God both was and is active in Scripture scripture is revelation. When a living God reveals himself, the result is a living truth. The Bible isn't just a book. But there's more. We must endeavor to share in the unbroken consensus of Israel and the church in regard to scripture. That a living God speaks in a living Word and that the Holy Scriptures are the written representation of that Word. We read Scripture in order to listen again to the Word of God spoken, and when we do, we hear Him speak. Somehow or other, these words live. You notice what happens when somebody walks into a worship service late and somebody's praying? What do they usually do? Stop, be still, wait till the prayer's over, sit down. Somebody's reading scripture, what do they do? Go right on, do whatever they're doing, may even be carrying on in conversation in the same room. Whose words are the words of a prayer? Human words. Whose words are the words of Scripture? Even though they may be uttered in a human voice, whose words are they? It raises the question of the purpose of Scripture and how we think about Scripture and what we do with it. We're not using Scripture correctly if we just use it to answer objections, prove an argument, win a debate, prove that that my conclusion is right and yours is wrong. That's not what the purpose of Scripture is. Paul says in several different ways that in Following the gospel, we are to learn how to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's the version in Philippians 1.27. Learn to conduct yourselves in a way that is worthy of the gospel. In Ephesians, he says, worthy of Jesus Christ. In Thessalonians, it says, worthy of God. But it's always about living your life. What kind of person are you? To be worthy of God. I used the word apologetics a couple of weeks ago, a reasoned defense for a position. Apologetics, giving reasons as, as we're talking about here, can't make a person a Christian. The only thing that can do that is the gospel and the Holy Spirit. We can try not to be a barrier. But we need to learn to trust the word of God, as the writer of Hebrews says, a double-edged sword that can penetrate right to the core of a person. God's word is either sharp and powerful and living or it's on the shelf to just pull down when we're curious about something. And until it becomes living and powerful to us, we really don't know the Bible or its purpose. Back to the painkiller addiction and death problem that I started with. Uh, When I was in uh, Baltimore at a teacher's conference a couple of weeks ago, I heard a speaker named uh, Joe Ehrman. He's a retired NFL Lineman, lives in Baltimore, uh, and I've learned since he is, he is himself a minister. But he was talking to this teacher's conference, totally secular setting. He was talking about a book he's written called Inside Out Coaching, and he distinguishes between two different kinds of coaches. One he calls transactional, the other transformational. Transactional coaches are just concerned about the one loss record. Winning is everything. That's the only thing. And so they quote Vince Lombardi a lot. But transactional coaches are interested in how they look, what their one loss record is, what people think of them, rather than the team and the individual player. Transformational coaches are those who consider the players the most important and the team's spirit as a venue in which to change these young men into men of character. Teaching them values. And he stood up there and rattled off values like, this is a direct quote, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And he went on. He didn't say it was from the Bible. He didn't say it's the fruit of the Spirit, but he said it with the conviction of somebody who knows what he's talking about. He's traveled all over the country doing this inside out coaching seminar. But here's a man who has drunk deeply after having experience in his playing career only transactional coaches is now talking about transformational coaches because he wants a life to come out of the kids who play on his teams that's what the Bible is supposed to be for us is transformational and until we get there we've still got some growing to do next week we'll talk about the inspiration of the scriptures